there's times where you have to stand up and do it yourself because nobody's there to help you. Devastation and frustration why Monty Lake residents feel abandoned by the government. Plus, rain on the south coast, but is there any relief for firefighters in the interior? And a lot of businesses have suffered down here and a lot of them have closed down. Cleaning up Chinatown, how the community is stepping up to help. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jordan Armstrong. Neetu Garcha has the night off. We begin east of Kamloops, where the White Rock Lake fire has wiped out a number of homes in the small community of Monty Lake. And many locals are furious with the B.C. government. These residents battling the flames themselves say they've been raising concerns for weeks. Concerns they feel were ignored. The news hours in Matagahi is near the edge of the 550 square kilometer fire tonight, and he joins us now live. Ahmad? Well, Jordan, once again tonight, we are just north of the community of Monty Lake, where the White Lock Lake fire has been its most devastating. But despite its size and aggressive behavior, there are some, as you mentioned, that have stayed behind to protect their properties from the oncoming flames. They are not firefighters. The people you see here were told to leave. Instead, they've chosen to stay back and take the White Rock Lake fire head on, even if that means defying evacuation orders. Oh, why are you here and not the, the BC Wildfire Service? Because they kind of left us stranded. I mean, they, they say that they're doing a whole bunch, but realistically, they haven't. What they're trying desperately to avoid is this. The chilling aftermath caused by the same fire in the community of Monty Lake, where the cars they drove and the buildings they called home are eerily charred and reduced to rubble. There's times where you have to stand up and do it yourself because nobody's there to help you. For those yet to lose everything, boiling hotter than the flames surrounding them, is frustration with how the government and the BC Wildfire Service have handled the White Rock Lake fire. It's very unfair because they didn't do their job. And how this week, they have publicly shamed residents for staying back to save their homes. I would like to speak directly to those who think they know more than the experts. No property is worth risking lives. Those poor guys are all burnt out and they got no voice. All they hear is from Farnsworth shooting his mouth off about putting the fire people into danger. And now amongst those most impacted, there is also the suggestion wildfire crews were too late to respond to the White Rock Lake fire weeks ago when it had just started. They let it burn until it got too close to people's homes and houses. When it gets too hot and I gotta go, I'll go. But no politician or bureaucrat's gonna tell me to go. And I don't appreciate being called a fool or, or stupid or whatever because I stay and save my house and my my livestock. Now today we did have an opportunity to take those concerns you heard from those residents uh, in the story to the BC Wildfire Service who dispute their claims and say they have been responding to the White Rock Lake fire since it was discovered. Upon detection it was uh, a few I think around 100 hectares it was very aggressive fire behavior so it was already a large wildfire uh, when we were able to get crews to it and so we did respond immediately uh, when we were able to 
um, sending helicopters and crews and, and followed up. And since then, we've obviously had incident management teams and uh, additional resources. Um, this is and has been for, uh, for a while the number one priority wildfire in the province of BC at this time. Now, as for conditions, there was a little bit of rain sprinkled on top of the fire from here to Vernon overnight into Saturday morning. Not enough to make a significant impact. The fire crews do believe that they will have favorable conditions and reprieve this weekend before hot and dry conditions come back Monday, Jordan. All right, thank you. Amadagahi reporting live tonight. Now to the Okanagan side of this fire, and it was a terrifying and sleepless night after some residents were suddenly forced from their homes and thousands of others were told to be ready to leave. Global's Jules Knox has more on how the night unfolded, concerns about an evacuation center that was closed in a time of need, and how some are fearful they won't have a home left standing when they return. The orange glow from the White Rock Lake wildfire lighting up the night sky and wreaking havoc down below. Big flame come from another side. We are run for life. The power went out, uh, tried to get out of there with no lights and anything in the house, scrambling over the place. Just before 9 o'clock Friday night, people at nearly 1,000 properties on an evacuation alert near Westside Road told to leave immediately. It was get to safety, get to safety. You could see the smoke coming down and the wind was just wild. And there's only one road out. It's a very big traffic. The ride out was just really, really slow. Lillian Birch was in the Fintry area when the order was issued. It was misinformation all, all evening. She says there was much confusion and tempers flaring. Somebody down the street is coming and saying, well, you got to go. And I said, well, where are you getting this information from? Like, nobody has come from official. She left, but like many, had nowhere to go because Kelowna's evacuation centre was closed. I parked outside of Bear Creek Park and the roadside and I that little space back there is where I slept. Regional district officials facing criticism because the evacuation centre closed overnight and did not reopen until noon Saturday. If it's an evacuation and then people have to get out, why is this not open with standby crew? The regional district says the centre is staffed by volunteers. So it's not just uh, the regional district of the central Okanagan, it's really across the province. It's run as a volunteer model. But that's leaving some to question why, in times of need, the evacuation centre isn't staffed by paid employees. The regional district says that could be considered at a debriefing in the future. Certainly, you know, this year I think there's been a lot of learnings and there's been uh, a lot of things to consider. As for many of those who could find some sort of a bed... A friend of mine put me up on his floor last night. It was still a sleepless night. I don't know if I've got a house to come back to. As of late Saturday afternoon, both the Okanagan Indian Band and the Central Okanagan's Regional District are reporting that no structures within their boundaries have been lost. NBC Wildfire Service is forecasting lower temperatures, less wind and some precipitation over the rest of the weekend. So firefighters are hoping to get the upper hand on the battle against this blaze. Jules Knox, Global News. Turning now to some other fires of note, the July Mountain Fire south of Merritt has jumped the Coquihalla Highway. BC Wildfire Service says the fire has grown over the last 24 hours to 5,600 hectares. 
So far, the highway remains open, but drivers are asked to be careful as smoke is affecting visibility. Two helicopters are working to control the fire, along with 16 firefighters. An evacuation order has been issued for 25 properties in the area. For the first time ever, B.C. smoke jumpers have been deployed to Vancouver Island. They are elite crews who parachute into difficult terrain to fight fires within two hours of their discovery. A local state of emergency is in effect in the Cowichan Valley Regional District and District of North Cowichan. The Holy Oak Creek Fire has continued to grow and now covers 32 hectares. The wildfire service planned what it called aggressive action against the fire today. That includes deploying sprinklers to protect one property in the Mount Prevost area. All right, let's check in with meteorologist Yvonne Shell. Yvonne, we had some rain here on the south coast, but what's the situation for people in the interior? Jordan, that same frontal system is actually going to work its way in towards the interior late this evening and through the day for tomorrow. And this is one of the forecast models where we do have the potential, maybe five and up to 10 millimeters, but with it, the big concern, because we are going to look at the risk of thunderstorms. Here's a smoke forecast for tomorrow. We've had more of a northwesterly wind. The concern, especially near those thunderstorms, will will pick up the winds. We could see gusts tomorrow ranging between 40 and up to 50 kilometers per hour, but more of a northwesterly wind for most areas and towards the interior. The concerns for tomorrow, though, will be that risk of thunderstorms, especially with the hot and dry conditions that we've had. We will see that for the Columbian, Kootenai, most areas and towards the Okanagan Valley will be included within that. Big weather story, though, as we get in towards next week, temperatures are on the rise. The heat makes a big return. And for this evening along the south coast, we do have the risk of thunderstorms. That coming up very shortly. All right. See you in a few minutes. Thanks, Yvonne. The B.C. wildfire emergency is bringing out the best and the worst in humanity, as witnessed last night in the central Okanagan. The local search and rescue team is taking care of this senior mixed breed dog after a heartbreaking encounter. Volunteers were evacuating homes on West Side Road when they saw a La Casa homeowner leave and then stop a few meters up the road. The man threw an older dog out of his vehicle before driving away from the resort. Central Okanagan SAR crews managed to wrangle the canine and bring her back to their command base, where she was given food and water. The team has adopted Smokey as their temporary mascot. She will be checked out by a local vet before a new forever home will be found for her. With many families in limbo due to the growing White Rock Lake fire, some North Okanagan Good Samaritans are making sure no pets go hungry. The Vernon Animal Auxiliary is helping pet and livestock owners who are under evacuation orders or alerts. On top of supplying a facility in Merritt with dog and cat food for Lytton and Spence's Bridge area evacuees, volunteers are accepting donations, rehoming pets in need, and caring for animals at O'Keefe Ranch. It's not for just one group, it's for anybody that's been evacuated. They can come and pick up whatever they need absolutely free. I've seen this before, I've been doing this a long time. I know what these monster fires can do, and this particular fire is bad. Right now, volunteers say cash donations are needed, along with safe places to house evacuated pets and farm animals. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Turning now to breaking news, RCMP in Richmond are dealing with a murder investigation following a grisly discovery in a ditch. This is the scene near Camby Road, west of Number 8 Road. Police say a member of the public found a man's body. Investigators believe the victim may have been killed during an apparent shooting. Police believe it was a targeted incident and not a random attack. The integrated homicide investigation team has been called in. 
This week, we found out more details about the transition to the Surrey Police Service from the Surrey RCMP. But as Julia Foy reports, the controversy over the changeover remains. I think the future is exciting for the citizens of Surrey. Uh, this is a long time coming. Surrey Police will deliver strategic... The new Surrey Police Service isn't on the road yet, but the chief is counting down the days. We start on uh, November 30th. All three levels of government have agreed on that. The RCMP working with SPS, and I want to thank everybody, all the stakeholders for getting there. It's been a long road for the SPS. A year ago, there were a lot of empty seats. Uh, the police board has just been appointed. There is no police chief. There is no collective agreement. But Lipinski says they're now good to go. We've got a union. We've got a date. We're moving forward. Uh, we've got great momentum and uh, we're here to stay. SPS expects to have 50 uniformed police on the ground by November 30th and up to 800 officers working by 2024. The timeline was developed by Public Safety Canada, the B.C. government, with the city of Surrey. But an internal memo from RCMP's E-Division regarding the Surrey police transition appears to say they should hold their horses. While the key messages refer to the implementation of substantial work plans already developed, I want to clarify the detailed planning of this process has not been completed. The top cop from Surrey RCMP confirms that the SBS is painting a rosier picture than they can see. Uh, we need to be cautious on indicating what form that will take before we get there. An online petition aimed at keeping the RCMP in Surrey is opening August 16th. This is your public safety. This You're paying for it. You should have a say in, in what's going on. The petition closes just two weeks before the Surrey Police Service is supposed to launch. The RCMP are still questioning the timeline. Over the course of the next few months, there's going to have to be some very heavy lifting to get it all done. Julia Foy, Global News. A representative of former Vancouver Canuck, Jake Furtanen, has now issued a statement about the disturbing allegations leveled against him. Back in May, the Canucks placed Furtanen on leave after a woman posted on social media sexual misconduct allegations against the 24-year-old. Vancouver police later confirmed their officers had been in contact with the accuser about the alleged assault. In the summer of 2017, the Canucks have since bought out his contract. A statement from Kevin App of Titan Sports Management says in part, Vertanen is adamant that absolutely nothing improper occurred and denies in the strongest possible terms any suggestion that this was non-consensual. It goes on to say, as this case gets addressed through the police investigation and civil court process, this could be determined as an attempt to destroy a person's reputation in the press before the ordinary processes could run their course or an attempt to obtain financial compensation from a high-profile athlete. The allegations have not been proven in court. Just ahead tonight, some much-needed TLC for Vancouver's Chinatown. The, the goal really is to bring people back into Chinatown. We'll show you what was done today to help the neighborhood get back on its feet. Plus, a warning for residents of another neighborhood after a string of groping incidents. Who to watch out for when the news hour continues. An army of volunteers came together in Vancouver's Chinatown today to show some love for a neighborhood hit hard by the pandemic. As Kristen Robinson reports, the rain didn't hinder the community cleaning campaign or the drive to bring people back. 
from the alleys to the streets of Chinatown. What Dozens clad in rain gear and armed with trash pickers battle litter with precision in a move to welcome people back to the landmark that's been losing its luster of late. It was really inspiring to see everyone show up today. This is where it all started. This is the heart and soul of the community. I think everybody has a memory of Chinatown and we don't want to lose that as the city continues to grow. Chinatown's decline was triggered more than a quarter century ago when parking problems and crime began driving customers away. By 1996, many were visiting Richmond's then five Asian malls. You take it leisurely and you really enjoy the shop windows. And the free parkings. Fast forward more than two decades and COVID took a devastating toll. A spike in anti-Asian attacks and surge of street disorder. It's like a war zone. It's like escape from New York out here. It's crazy. Tourists and shoppers disappeared. The area overrun with graffiti vandalism and garbage. Going up down in Chinatown, like you see how it has changed. Patrolling the streets, Louis Lee is now the eyes and ears for the heritage neighborhood where he was raised. Just ensuring that, you know, people are coming back um, and feeling safe to come back. Thanks for helping out, guys. His team, among close to 200 volunteers, committed to rejuvenating that historic spark. While erasing COVID's cruel mark. The goal really is to bring people back into Chinatown. Um, you know, show us some love here. And uh, in the long term, Chinatown's open for business. Working together moving forward is going to be the key to the success of revitalizing Chinatown as tourists start to return. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Vancouver police are warning the public after a series of gropings in the Champlain Heights neighborhood. Between April 9th and August 1st, four gropings were reported to the VPD. Police say all of the incidents happened just off Kerr Street between 51st and 55th Avenues between the hours of 3 in the afternoon and 9 at night. The suspect is believed to be between 17 and 30 years old. He was wearing sweatpants and a hooded sweater in all four cases. If you feel unsafe in any circumstance, any store, any street, any park, please call police. I can't stress enough how uh, important it is to report incidences. Even if you feel like, oh, nothing happened, uh, we, we need it to report it because we have, we analyze this data and, and from there we can solve other crimes. Police are asking the public to be vigilant and call 911 if they see anything suspicious in the Champlain Heights area. Coming up, a sad update on a well-known killer whale. Why researchers are not optimistic about the fate of K-21. But first, a big development in the labor dispute involving Canada's border guards. Welcome back to the news hour. A tentative agreement has been reached to keep border workers on the job. The four-year deal follows 36 hours of straight-mediated talks after more than 9,000 border services workers Stage a work-to-rule campaign yesterday, stalling traffic at some of Canada's busiest international gateways. Employees haven't had a contract in three years. The deal between Ottawa and the union was reached before restrictions at the Canada-U.S. border ease on Monday, allowing fully vaccinated Americans their first chance to cross into Canada for pleasure trips since the pandemic began in March of last year. Every birth in the southern resident killer whale population is celebrated, and every death in the endangered species is mourned. So it is distressing news that an expert fears another member could be lost 
Global's Paul Johnson has that story. We saw JPOD return after an absence of 108 days. What would normally be a sight to rejoice for those who study and love our region's southern resident orcas has turned into a time of mourning. One of the old males, K-21, also known as Cappuccino, was clearly in his last days. Kier was a big male, 35 years old, gigantic dorsal fin, and totally uh, bent over, just wrapped down the side of his body. Cappuccino hasn't been seen since and is now presumed dead. Speculation about what killed him will no doubt start with the condition of his extended family, who've struggled in recent years to find an adequate supply of their main food source, Chinook salmon. But UBC marine mammal researcher Andrew Trites has a different theory, given that orcapods share food and wouldn't let a single member starve. He thinks, given Cappuccino's age, there's a good chance he died of cancer. I got to know him much, much later, um, but nevertheless, it still feels like the loss of a family member. The widespread reaction to Cappuccino's presumed passing highlights the dramatic shift that's happened in the way we think about orcas. From aquarium curiosities just a few decades ago to the highly intelligent beings who continue to astound researchers with the things they're learning about their complex social systems and culture. The governor of Washington state, who share the southern residents with us, actually put out a statement marking Cappuccino's death and urging more measures to help them. UBC's Trites says the present list of threats includes shipping, whale watching, and climate change. Well, food is, is undoubtedly the key to the long-term survival. We can't discount the contributing factors of all these other things that are also adding stresses to them. Each one is more, one more piece of straw on their backs. Paul Johnson, Global News. More than 50 people turned out at Jackpool Plaza in Vancouver today to push for democracy in Myanmar. Mark's legitimate government. The country these protesters call Burma has been in turmoil for six months since the military ousted the civilian government back in February. Since then, local monitors say more than 900 people have been killed in a brutal crackdown. The country has also been hit hard by staggering rise in COVID-19 cases. The protesters want the military out, even though they know their struggle could be a long one. We have to succeed. The hope is hope, but we have to um, implement, you know, to gain our achievement. This is our goal because of, you know, um, we have been struggling our democratization in Burma for more than until we gain our achievement, you know, from generation to generation, we have to struggle for our achievement. In Health Matters tonight, a research group in Japan has found that the so-called Moderna arm was more prevalent among women in their 30s and 40s. Moderna arm is characterized by a rash, redness or itching appearing several days after getting the COVID-19 vaccine. The researchers surveyed Japanese Armed Forces members who received Moderna vaccine shots. Specifically, they found that 8.1% of women in their 30s and 7.8% of women in their 40s developed the symptoms after their first dose. These rates were higher than men, and researchers could not find a correlation between the incidents. 
and conditions like food allergies and asthma. One professor at a Japanese university says that people who showed reactions after their first vaccination may have been unknowingly infected in the past. Meteorologist Yvonne Shell's forecast is just ahead, plus why Edmonton City Hall got a temporary new name in honor of a movie star. You are looking at Nathan Fillion Civilian Pavilion, usually known as Edmonton City Hall. We'll explain after the forecast. Not a downpour everywhere, but a gray day on parts of the south coast with rain and overcast skies reported across much of the region today. A lot of people enjoying the cooler temperatures and fresher air while it lasts. Let's get an answer now on what's ahead in that forecast. Here's meteorologist Devon Shell. Yeah, it was a much needed reprieve, especially along the south coast today. We've had over 50 days without measurable precipitation out of the airport and it looks like we did get some today. Now, a gorgeous shot overlooking English Bay. We have temperatures sitting into the low 20s. We're at 21 and we've got a bit of an easterly wind. Could see a bit breezy conditions continuing near the water. Right now it's at 22 kilometers per hour. There is actually a little bit of active weather along the south coast. It may be bright now across Metro Vancouver, but we do have some lightning that's popped up right along the Sunshine Coast near Powell River, and that could push across Metro Vancouver, so we still have a slight risk of a thunderstorm as we get in towards this evening. We could see some isolated showers, and that continues overnight leading in towards our Sunday morning. We've got a few lightning strikes just popping up near Williams Lake and just uh, between uh, Kelowna and Revelstoke, and the big instability for tomorrow and the area of concern will be for the Columbia and Kootenai and all areas in towards the Okanagan Valley. Smoky skies bulletin still in effect. Now this stretches in towards the Fraser Canyon, the southeastern corners of the province. We'll still see smoke across these regions over the next 24 and 48 hours and we've got more of a northwesterly wind for tomorrow. So we've got the winds blowing in towards the southeasterly direction for many areas and we will continue to see that for the latter half of the weekend and into early next week. Fire danger rating though with the wet weather that we've been tracking through the day today along the south coast there has been an improvement but we're still seeing in towards the southern interior sitting at high. Now here's a look overnight tonight. We do have a chance of showers all areas across the south coast it'll just be for the morning hours dry and clearing out towards the afternoon but the concern through the afternoon especially the southeastern corners the Columbia and Kootenai will be that risk thunderstorms and we're hoping to see some precipitation five and up to 10 millimeters but lightning will be the big concern across those areas the northern half of the province for tomorrow with a few isolated showers light in terms of precipitation risk of a thunderstorm will be for the northeastern corners of the province much of the central interior tomorrow it's a mix of sun and cloud the concern for the southern interior especially the southeastern corners that's where looking at the risk of thunderstorms and lightning will be the big concern still a bit of a reprieve for our temperatures though but they are going to bump up in the long range. We've got a ridge that's going to build in and it'll be soaring into the low 30s and that's Wednesday and leading in towards Thursday. A few isolated showers for the morning. The Humidex tomorrow up to 25 degrees and then a heads up Wednesday, Thursday. It'll be similar towards the interior with those temperatures back into the low 30s. Jordan? Just a brief reprieve. All right, thanks, Yvonne. Edmonton City Hall has a temporary new name in honor of a local son. For two days over the weekend, the local landmark is known as the Nathan Fillion Civilian Pavilion. It's all thanks to a popular online petition and some Hollywood support. The Edmonton actor, best known for starring in the TV series Firefly and Castle, appears on the big screen in the new film The Suicide Squad out this weekend. And his co-stars got in on the fun earlier this week. In Edmonton, his friends hope the campaign keeps picking up speed.
It's a good start. Now, of course, we could look at prolonging that period, maybe permanently renaming City Hall the Nathan Fillion Civilian Pavilion, or perhaps uh, a city park, as had been mentioned in the petition. So we'll see. I, it, is a, it is a good start, baby steps to begin with, but I think we need to go further. The petition to make a permanent Nathan Fillion Civilian Pavilion already has more than 27,000 signatures. It's not as easy to say as no. City Hall. No. <laughs> but maybe Catchy more entertaining. But long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For sure. Barry, what's coming up in sports? Well, the Olympics, it's already Sunday in Tokyo, so the final day. So we'll uh, set up what uh, Canada has uh, coming up. Also, baseball pennant races uh, getting going. Nick Pavetta, who as a Blue Jay fan growing up, he's from Victoria, pitches for the Red Sox now. And he pitched the first game of a doubleheader, a great one. We'll have highlights of that coming up. So do you cheer for the Victoria kid or do you cheer for the Blue Jays? A lot of people are torn about that one, but uh, great highlights coming up. For sure. Good stuff. Thanks, Barry. Also coming up, a community's quick thinking and quick action to save a fawn stuck in a fence. Attention consumers having issues with scammers, price gougers, corner cutters, con artists, or big business bullies. Help is here. And Rua investigates consumer matters on Global News. Ottawa's Carleton University has joined the list of post-secondary institutions that have made COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory for a large part of its on-campus life. There has been a call for that here at BC campuses. But as Brittany Rosen reports, it's also raised numerous ethical concerns. A new school year is about to begin. And for many students, including those attending Ottawa's Carleton University, it means a host of new measures to protect from COVID-19. Students are really happy about that. They're asking, um, you know, Carleton to, to some, somehow kind of like put a rule on vaccination and just be more strict with that. Just because, you know, rest, everyone's going to be sharing with each other. This week, the school announced anyone living on campus, playing sports or taking music instruction classes will have to be fully vaccinated. Carleton joins other post-secondary institutions such as Seneca College and U of T, who have similar policies. Although vaccination rates are on the decline across the country, many regions are still pushing to get people inoculated. Ontario has partnered with Go Transit to convert buses into mobile vaccination clinics. The first stop, Canada's Wonderland. The initiative is offering shots to anyone over 12. We've seen both first and second doses, so that shows that there's still a need and still people that are ready to uh, get their vaccines out, out there. But there are still many who are not ready to be vaccinated, and the issue of making it mandatory to get a jab has been polarizing. It definitely helps stop the spread of COVID-19. I don't think they should be made mandatory because it's, uh, it's people's health, and I think they know what's best for them. If this is what the majority wants, that so we should go for it. Everybody should be vaccinated. Quebec plans to introduce vaccine passports, and there are calls in Ontario to do the same. The Ford government has rejected the idea, but bioethicist Carrie Bowman says that could change in the upcoming weeks, despite looming ethical concerns. My take on this is there's somewhat of a cultural shift very quickly on mandatory vaccines. If our governments are going to move forward, we have to be very, very clear as to why we are doing this and that it's grounded in epidemiology and, of course, science. Brittany Rosen, Global News. Barry DeLay has sports after a break. Find out how a B.C. boy fared today pitching for the Red Sox against the Blue Jays. Now it's a fastball, curveball, slider, working for him. 
Don't miss the 111th annual Peony Fair. Enjoy the long-standing tradition at a reduced capacity with health and safety precautions in place. See all your favorite shows and attractions like super dogs, live music, rides, and more, plus all the fair food you can eat. The IGA Vancouver Golf Tour is excited to host the sixth annual Whistler Open, presented by Nick Solden Harris. Enjoy great golfing and a beautiful getaway at two of Whistler's finest golf courses. For RBC, I'm Michael Newman. If you want to know, it's on the hub. If you want to show, it's on the hub. If you want to go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. Welcome back. Canada has its flag bearer at the Olympics, but first, a bit of a dilemma for local baseball fans mm-hmm. today. Yeah, it's getting fun down the stretch here into August, September. Blue Jays are in the running this year. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, Blue Jays fans who happen to live in Victoria and all around B.C. were a little torn today. Victoria's Nick Pavetta got the start against the Blue Jays in the first game of a key doubleheader. It's always great to see Pavetta pitch well, but... Man, the Jays need wins if they're going to make the playoffs in the American League. They want to catch the Red Sox. Unfortunately for the Jays, Pavetta had one of the best starts of his career. The big right-hander struck out a pair of the Murderer's Row Blue Jay lineup, got Vladdy Guerrero, then Marcus Semien to end the inning. In the third, Pavetta will strike out Alejandro Kirk, nine up, nine down, perfect through three. It was a fantastic pitcher's duel in game one. Robbie Ray, the Jays, will strike out Hunter Renfro, No hits for either team into the fifth, and these are two very good offenses. Boston did get a hit off Ray, and the Jays broke up Pavetta's perfect game in the fifth as well. But in the sixth, Pavetta gets Santiago Espinal looking. Pavetta nearly perfect. Six shutout innings, one hit, five Ks. He did all he could. Now in the seventh, another Canadian pitcher in the game, Jays closer Jordan Romano from Ontario, gets Kevin Plawecki looking at strike three. It's still scoreless. Go to the bottom of the seventh, still 0-0. Red Sox closer Matt Barnes, his first pitch, and Marcus Semien parks it, takes him deep, deep. A walk-off homer for the Jays, who win at one nothing. Each team only had two hits. Toronto moves to within three of the Red Sox. They were ten games back just ten days ago. Now we go to game two. Jays looking for the sweep, and this was good theater, too. Another pitcher's duel, Jose Barrios, second start with the Jays since being acquired from the Twins. And Berrio strikes out Marwin Gonzalez, scoreless in the fourth. But with two out in the bottom of the fourth, Bravik Valera just called up from the minors a couple weeks ago, getting at bats with Kevin Biggio injured. Clutch hit to score Bo Bichette. And it's one nothing Jays. Takes everyone. It's just not the big hitters who have to come through. Burrio sailing along in the sixth until Alex Verdugo hits one to deep right center just over the wall for a homer. Red Sox first run of the day in 12-plus innings, and they have gone to extras in the eighth inning. Of course, just seven-inning doubleheaders now. It's 1-1 in the eighth. Jake Vertanen's agent has released... A lengthy statement regarding the sexual assault allegations leveled against the former Canuck forward. Kevin Epp of Titan Sports Management confirms that four years ago, Vertanen had consensual physical relations with a woman. No drugs or alcohol were involved. The statement says Vertanen is adamant that absolutely nothing of proper occurred and denies in the strongest possible terms any suggestion that this was non-consensual. The only case that has made its way into the court system is the civil lawsuit seeking payment of money from Vertanen, which he is responding to. There have been no criminal charges laid against Vertanen. 
Well, the Lions almost pulled off a miraculous comeback last night in their season opener in Regina. Michael Riley did not start at quarterback because of his inflamed elbow. He did eventually play, then came out again as the Lions fell just short 33-29. It was a festive atmosphere, as always, at Mosaic Stadium, a sellout crowd of 33,000-plus. Riley gave the elbow a shot in warm-up, didn't feel he had it, so the rookie Canadian Nathan Rourke got the start. First Lions uh, Canadian quarterback to start since Julio Caravetta in the mid-'90s. Rough start for Rourke, got picked by Nick Marshall, took it in for the touchdown. It was 32-9 at the half. Riley started the second half, and he led the Lions to a pair of TD drives, hits James uh, Butler on the four-yard touchdown to make it 32-22, but he felt the elbow weakening, so back comes Rourke, and when he came back, he promptly hits Brian Burnham with a great pass for the touchdown. Burnham, as always, so sure-handed, makes a great diving catch, and all of a sudden, the Lions are within four at 33-29. They got the ball back in the final minute, but Rourke Needing to get a touchdown is intercepted by A.C. Leonard, a valiant effort, but the Lions lose 33-29. Afterwards, head coach Rick Campbell said they really were hoping Riley would start the game and they were not playing possum whatsoever. It was absolutely, I can tell you, we're not being deceitful in any way. We're, we wanted the, the guy to play, he wanted to play, and uh, it was a decision that was literally made on the sideline. So... Um, I mean, I had to be honest with Rick. It was it was honestly the probably the hardest thing that I've done for a long time in football was to tell him that I, I was not going to give us the best chance to win uh, because I've been waiting for this moment so long to play in this game. Um, you know, but it was pretty clear to me after the coin toss when I was throwing that um, the person that gave us the best chance to be successful at the start of the game was was Nathan and not me. CFL today, Argos and Stamps from Calgary, and the Argos strike first. McLeod Bethel-Thompson at quarterback, nine yards to Juwan Breskison, the former Stampeder. Touchdown Argos, they led 8-0. But Calgary gets its first TD of the season in the second. Bo Levi-Mitchell connects with Kamar Jordan, who makes the nice diving catch for the TD. Stamps led 14-12 at the half. Fourth quarter now, Toronto down eight, but it's Bethel-Thompson finding Eric Rogers for the touchdown. They got the two-pointer, and they are in a deadlock right now. In the fourth quarter, it is Stampeders and Argos tied 20-20. It's already Sunday in Tokyo, the final day of the Olympics. Gold medal decathlete Damian Warner will be the flag bearer for Canada in the closing ceremony, and rightfully so. He was incredible this week. Canada may have a shot for one more medal in track cycling, but as it is, Canada has already set a new record for medals won at an Olympic Games, not counting the 84 boycotted games in Los Angeles where the Soviets and all of the communist bloc countries at the time didn't send teams. Canada's record 23rd medal came in the women's canoe double 500 race. Canada's Katie Vincent and Lawrence Vincent Lapointe took the bronze. China won gold, and then the Canadian girls did a little dip in the lake to celebrate that bronze medal. Canada nearly won another medal in the women's 4x400-meter relay. The heavily favored Americans won the gold by a mile, but Canada was in the group fighting for second and third, but they ended up fourth, which was pretty great considering they just squeaked into the final with the eighth fastest time. And Kevin Durant and Team USA took on France in the men's gold medal basketball game. France beat them earlier in the tournament, but Durant led the way for the Americans, hitting the three. He had 29 points. It was 
wasn't easy, but the U.S. won their fourth straight Olympic gold in men's basketball and number three in a row for Durant, 87-82 over France. So the medal standings, China with two more gold than the Americans, but the U.S. could catch them on the final day. It'll be very close. Canada, a solid 14th with their record 23 medal haul and just finished the men's marathon. Trevor Hoffbauer of Burnaby was 48th. Cam Levins of Courtney, 72nd. Golf today, the WGC St. Jude Classic, third round from Memphis, Tennessee. Bryson DeChambeau lost 10 pounds when he had COVID. Looks a lot better, not as bulky. Played better, too. Almost holes out here at the 13th for an eagle. Would make the birdie DeChambeau at the low round of the day. 7 under 63. He is tied for second at 16 under. But it's Harris English on top. He's led since round one. The birdie here at 17. He's got a two-shot lead at 18 under. The only Canadian in the field, Corey Connors, tied 25th at 5 under. The rest of the tour at the Barracuda Championship near Squaw Valley, California. Players desperate to win money, get FedEx points to keep their tour cards late in the year. Canadian Taylor Pendrith, he'll graduate full-time to the PGA Tour next year after winning on the Corn Ferry Tour, makes an eagle putt. He's seventh with 30 points. They're using the modified Stableford scoring system where you get points for birdies and eagles and lose points with bogeys. Adam Shank is the leader. He's got 38 points thanks to that birdie on the 13th. A four-point lead merits Roger Sloan tied 16th with 26, but he needs a top three to help secure his card. And uh, Adam Hadwin and Nick Taylor both missed the cut. That's it for sports. All right, thanks, Barry. When we come back, the people who helped the baby deer get out of a very tough spot. Our world is changing fast, but the plan remains the same. Ask the questions, explain the answers, provide the context. When and where BC needs it most. Global News. Navigate the now. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. On Global News Hour at 6. Welcome back. A fawn in New Brunswick has a couple police and bolt cutters to thank for its survival. They all came to the animal's rescue after it got stuck in a fence. Global's Callum Smith has the story. We were driving up the highway and I was kind of daydreaming out the, looking out the window and I just happened to notice a deer upside down and thought it was strange and kind of looked over at my girlfriend and said, I think there's a deer caught in the fence. So the couple pulled over, got out, and started looking. We walked up. It was right here because you can see where we cut it. And there's some of its fur from its, its legs and its injuries. Didn't look good. It looked like there was maybe a broken leg and it had some cuts and it had some missing fur just from thrashing around. And we tried to assess the situation and get it out of the fence, but no luck and that it was kind of a panic of how do we help it. Two Fredericton police officers happened to be in the area on an unrelated call and were able to assist. But thankfully just right place right time that somebody showed up that had bolt cutters that could help get it out. And I put myself on top of the fawn to hold it there so it wouldn't run across the highway. No broken bones were found. As I sat down with it after we got it cut out it was moving all four legs just fine. It even stayed in his lap until Department of Natural Resources came. It was pretty calm for most of the time sitting there. Just kind of was relaxed and just knew it must have been getting help. A couple photos to capture the moment. 
There's been a big response on social media, which I didn't expect. My dad kind of got worked up because I didn't film any of it. He was like, people eat that stuff up and you didn't even film it. To hold one and pet one and, and talk to it, you kind of have that thought like, I'd really like to take it home, but you can't. <laughs> then DNR officers arrived. And they put the kennel right beside me and I just guided the fawn inside head first. And they had a field, they said, just up the road where they were going to go check it out and make sure there was no broken bones or anything like that and, and hopefully reunite it with its mother. Just relieved they could help. Being an outdoorsman for almost 30 years, it's, it's one of those things where you don't think twice about it. A happy ending to a furry situation. Callum Smith, Global News, Fredericton. Hey, all right, you've probably seen those free neighborhood libraries, you know, the ones where you take a book and leave a book. Well, that concept has literally gone to the dogs. It's called a little stick library, and much like their better-known counterparts, the rule is take a stick, leave a stick. This one is located in a quiet, pet-loving neighborhood in Wisconsin where neighbors say it's been a hit with the pups. Great idea because, as any pet owner knows, life is better when the dogs are happy. <laughs> Cool idea. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Let's get a last look at the weather, Yvonne. Uh, we are looking at still a slight risk of a thunderstorm even across Metro Vancouver. All areas along the south coast, we've had some active weather right along the Sunshine Coast and the eastern edge of the island, and that could potentially move into Metro Vancouver. So a heads up. Still a few isolated showers for the morning hours on our Sunday. It'll ease off drier towards the afternoon. Big weather story into next week. The heat makes a return, especially for the southern interior. Certainly nice to have those cooler temperatures yeah. today, right? You bet. That's tonight's news hour. Thanks for watching. We'll all be back at 11. Hope to see you then. Good night.